Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com and Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. We're going to be talking today about primary care, and in particular, independent primary care in Vermont. I happen to have a particular interest in this topic since I previously had my own independent practice for 15 years and am certainly familiar with the joys and challenges of that path. Primary care providers are often described as the quarterbacks of health care, but unlike the NFL, where quarterbacks are usually the most valued players, in recent decades, primary care has been relatively devalued. We're going to talk to focus on primary care today and why it is so important for the healthcare system. We do have three guests today and I will introduce them in turn. Colin Flanders is a staff writer for seven days and recently wrote a lead article on independent primary care practices entitled The Doctor is Out. Dr. Laura Norris is an independent family practice physician in Cambridge, Vermont. She attended medical school at the University of Vermont Medical School and did her residency and family practice at the University of, Calif- University of Carolina in Charleston. And we welcome back Jessa Bernard, uh, who was on with us last year. She is the executive director of the Vermont Medical Society. She graduated from Dartmouth with an undergraduate degree and then Stanford Law School and has worked for many years now in the area of healthcare policy. We also would like to hear from you, our listeners. Uh, you're part of this show. If you have questions for our guests or if you've had some experiences with uh, the primary care health care system, give us a call at 802-244-1777. So I want to welcome our three guests. Miss, uh, I'm having some difficulty hearing them. Uh, Colin, or Mr. Well, we'll start with uh, Ms. Just Jessa is there right now, Doc. All right. We will start with Ms. Bernard, who I was going to come to later, but we'll start with you, and we'll bring the other two back in just a moment. Ms. Bernard, we, we spoke last year about um, some of the issues that Vermont Medical Society feels are important. Certainly, primary care is at the top of the list. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the initiatives that the Vermont Medical Society is interested in uh, putting forward this year uh, for the legislature. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me this afternoon. Am I uh, you able to hear me all okay right now? I can. Thanks. Okay, great. Well, I just want to start out by thanking you for having me and also recognizing um, to any of the, the primary care clinicians who might be listening or the public out there that we know that the past week or two has been some of the toughest uh, facing primary care in the whole pandemic. Uh, we've been hearing about the 
difficulty patients are having getting through. Um, there are so many families calling, trying to navigate what to do about positive COVID tests or returning to school, returning to work. So we know it's a really hard time for Vermonters and the primary care clinicians trying to care for them um, right now. So we wanted to start with recognizing that and then combining that with the fact that, as you mentioned at the um, outset, there's been, we think, a sort of gradual devaluation, at least um, financially, in terms of the commitment to primary, funding primary care in the state. While there's a lot of talk about how primary care is the underpinning of our healthcare system and, in fact, may need to be relied on more and more as we reform our healthcare system, there hasn't been a lot of uh, funding or structure to go along with that. Um, Can I stop you for just a moment? We do have our other two guests on. I know Mr. Flanders is going to have to leave us in a few minutes, and I did want to bring him in first, but we're going to be talking with you more, so please stay with us here. No problem. Uh, Colin Flanders, are you with us? I am, yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And uh, you're the staff writer for Vermont Seven Days who wrote the um, uh, lengthy lead article uh, in December can you tell me for just for a moment how you and your editors chose that topic and, and why you chose it when you did? Sure. Well, I was interested in this topic because I had previously written um, a story about long wait times for medical care at the University of Vermont Medical Center. And in my reporting for that process, I started to think about potential solutions and, and how can we start to fix um, what many agree is an overburdened system right now. And I got thinking – um, obviously, hospital doctors aren't the only ones out there. I wonder how independent doctors are doing. What role can they play in, in talking to a lot of these people? Um, I, I just got more and more interested in the independent community and some of the challenges they face, but also some of the some of the real benefits that they say they pose to, to not only the system, the healthcare system in general, but patients. And if you had to summarize a few main. Uh, things that you learned in, in your research and writing, what were some of those things? Sure. I mean, the overarching theme of the article is that independent doctors are somewhat of a dying breed in Vermont. Um, dozens have left private practice in recent years to retire early or join hospitals or rural health centers, and those who are sticking it out are getting older, and many expect to retire within the next decade. And unfortunately, there's no wave of replacements waiting um, many young doctors have no interest in running a business. Um, they're seeking out salary jobs where they can count on steady paychecks and better work-life balances. And the people who are so drawn to this type of small-town medicine start to have second thoughts when they think of what they'd make at many of these Vermont practices. And so long-term, um, what this could amount to is fewer choices, not only for patients who would be forced to seek care from hospital practices, such as UVM, where we know wait times or long, but also more doctors will have to work for these large institutions where they'll have less control over the patient experience, over um, the finances. And so um, that's a concern to people who, who really value this, that, that feeling, the feeling that you're not just a number, that your doctor really knows you, has the time um, to spend with you and might build a relationship over 10, 20, 30 years. We should, you know, I should point out that this is not unique to Vermont, that this is a trend that's being seen across the country. However, in rural states like Vermont, it's particularly noticeable because, uh, many of the new physicians tend to cluster in urban areas, uh, where they're, uh, more 
amenities that they've become used to or in, and more services uh, and more tertiary care centers. So it's it's particularly noticeable in, in a small rural state like Vermont. Uh, yeah, I thought your article was poignant, and I encourage people to, if you can go back online or, or uh, get a hard copy of the Seven Days to read it, some of the doctors you spoke with, including Dr. Norris, who we'll talk to in a moment, about uh, the conflict they're feeling that they uh, this is what they chose to do with their lives, and yet it's being made increasingly difficult. What are some of the difficulties that they are facing? Yeah, so one of the biggest difficulties that I came across is that um, independent doctors are reimbursed less on average than doctors who work for hospitals. And and a lot of doctors have not seen their reimbursement rates increase in years. And at the same time, if you think about running any type of business, expenses are constantly going up. Um, we're talking about rent, um, utilities, um, salaries. I mean, for some of these people, they're watching the premiums that they pay for their employees go up at the same time that they're not seeing the rates that they're getting paid as doctors go up. And so that financial crunch is really wearing a lot of people down. And um, when we talk about independent doctors, these are people who are often staying afloat because they're working longer hours. They're making themselves available at all times of the day. And it's it's exhausting. I, I talk to a lot of them, and they say that they love what they do. They wouldn't change it, but they are really, really exhausted right now. And, and um, I think that's the biggest challenge is trying to find a sustainable model that they can take into the future, something that um, a, a lot of them are struggling with right now. So in other words, a doctor at universe, a primary care pro- provider or physician at University of Vermont Medical Center can do the exact same service as one of these independent doctors and be paid more, or at least the system can be paid considerably more. Is that true? That's true, yeah. And it's a good point there. It's the system taking in the money. It's not the doctors themselves. The doctors at hospitals are typically on salary, so they're getting paid the same thing every year, regardless of how much they're bringing in. But the difference is that if you go to UVM for your care, your doctor will get paid more for the same service. And hospitals defend these disparities by noting that they have to provide a wide range of services. So in addition to, say, primary care, they're also providing emergency care, um, neonatal care, trauma care, some of these things that um, don't make as much money but are still important to the community. Um, so there is a tension there, and, and the problem is that there is really only so much money to go around. Um, insurers are constantly trying to keep their prices low because that's what we pay for our health insurance. Um, and so, so there is just a constant battle over this small pot of money. Um, and a lot of times the hospitals win out because they have more leverage in these negotiations. And I'm going to, I know you're going to have to go in a few minutes, but I did want to ask you about autonomy because you mentioned that a moment ago that, uh, the independent Physicians have the ability to make their own decisions about their practices uh, and their own decisions regarding their patients. Does that get lost for the physicians in the big systems to some degree, do you think? I think it does, and I think a lot of it would depend on the physician, where they work. I mean, I definitely don't want to paint too broad of a stroke here, but across the board what I do hear from independent doctors is they have more control to decide one, their schedule, so how long they're spending with patients. Um, I, I spent a few days inside of some of these doctor's offices, and I was really struck by the amount of time that they were able to give each patient. They were able to sit there, listen to the patients, talk about things that 
that really weren't related to their health problem, maybe about their life, about what's going on. And all of these things are connected as when we think of uh, how we're feeling healthy. But um, it, it's whereas a doctor at a hospital might feel a little more pressure to get people in, they're kind of under the gun. Um, another thing is just the, how it feels in the office. Some of these offices I spent some time in, it's a human answering the phone every single time. When you show up to the, um, when you show up to check in, the person knows you by name. I mean, Dr. Norris, who I believe you'll be talking to in a little bit, she kind of put it um, like this. She was saying, it's really the difference between going to the general store to get your cup of coffee or going to the Starbucks. I mean, some of this, it's a, a lot of being known, being understood, feeling like you're not just a number that leads to satisfaction. And I think that that's how a lot of these independent doctors view what they provide, this more personal approach. I mean, they think it's really beneficial. I'm sure anyone who has called the university system and got tried to work their way through their phone tree could, could relate to that. Um, what was it like for you to be embedded I, I, for several days in, in some of these practices? It was fascinating for me. I mean, as a, as a patient, um, you really only see a, a sliver of what's going on. So you'll show up, you'll check in, you'll get brought to, to the room, and then you'll leave. And, and meanwhile, there were all of these things going on behind the scenes. And, and the places that I spent some time in were mostly working with paper charts, which was fascinating to see. I mean, it, it is really like this never-ending assembly line of paperwork moving, um, f- phones ringing, fax machine. These people are working tirelessly um, and and so that was I think that was the biggest thing for me to see is um, all that goes into running an office. Um, you really don't realize it until you sit there and watch for a few hours, and um, it, it was pretty fascinating. And finally, one 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 last question. Uh, I think you talked about this a little bit in your article, and that is direct primary care, which is one avenue that uh, primary care physicians are looking at, not so much in Vermont up to this point, but I know in other areas of the country they are. Uh, what is direct primary care, and could it possibly be a, something of an answer for uh, the, the challenges that uh, independents are facing? Yeah, so, so what, what's known as direct primary care, it's this relatively new model that allows physicians to avoid um, insurance and instead focus on their patients. So instead of billing insurance, Um, direct primary care doctors charge a flat fee that can cover anything from office visits to forms of virtual communication. Um, Participating doctors say that they manage without the additional staff needed to navigate the health insurance system, and that saves them um, money and time. And patients typically pay an average of about $75 a month um, in return for this access. As far as the question of whether this is sort of the answer to the problems we're facing, I think there's a lot of skepticism about that, largely because um, at their core, direct primary care practices seek to provide more in-depth care, and so they can't take as many patients. Um, One that I talked to, her patient load was under 400, and that was about a third of what she was seeing when she worked at a rural health center. So um, critics say if many more doctors switch to the model, more Vermonters would have trouble finding a primary care physician. The argument against that is that if it's helping keep people in business, keep them from retiring early, then maybe it is keeping access open. Um, but it is a fine line, and we'll, we'll kind of have to see um, how things play out as things move forward. If more doctors do take this on, um, what it does to our numbers. Miss Bernard, I'll, let me ask you briefly: uh, Has 
the Vermont Medical Society taken a stance on direct primary care? Uh, no, we don't have a position on direct prim- the direct primary care model specifically. I think we recognize both the pros and um, potential drawbacks that Colin mentioned. I think he articulated that well. Okay. Well, Colin, I know that you had another meeting. You're welcome to stay. We would love for you to stay, but if you have to go to another meeting, uh, I want to thank you for your time and for writing that article. I think it was important, and I encourage everyone to, to try and read it because uh, it was a terrifically written article. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. And um, I guess we'll, before I go to Dr. Norris, uh, we have a caller, uh, Deborah, on the line. Hi. Um, I am a primary care physician, actually work with Dr. Norris. Oh, this is Dr. Debrichter, I believe, and I appreciate yes. you calling. And I would uh, actually like to, um, you had asked about legislation. I just would like to have the listeners know there is a bill sitting on the wall in the House Health Committee, H-276, that would help begin to solve a lot of the problems that you are all talking about, where because a lot of the problem is that everyone has different coverage, and some people have no coverage at all. And this bill would actually publicly fund primary care, including mental health and substance use services, um, substance abuse services um, for all Vermonters, and it would then phase in other sectors of care over time, uh, H-276, and I would urge uh, the, any listeners to call their legislator, legislators to let them know about this bill. That's can all I can have you give say. us the, the number of that bill again? It's H-276. Right. And as we know, the legislature starts, I guess, this week. Uh, and, uh, right, and they failed to take it up. This is actually it just sat on the wall all last session, and we're urging them to take it up this session. Well, clearly there's a crisis in primary care as we're talking about today. Dr. Richter, thank you. I know you've been involved with this issue for many years and are both uh, taking care of patients and trying to make sure the whole system begins to respond in a different way. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. So let me talk to Dr. Laura Norris now, who I believe is a, a partner, one of Dr. Richter's uh, medical partners in that practice in Cambridge. Uh, doc, uh, Dr. Norris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you are on the ground, in the middle of it. Um, uh, and Colin uh, Flanders might have been there for a few days, but you've been doing this for years now. Um, tell me about some of the what you've seen over the years that you've been an independent uh, primary care and how it's changed? You know, um, I, what I see sort of as a, a broad sweeping um, picture is that there, since I practiced, started practicing about 26 or 27 years ago, you know, we see the rise and fall of insurance models, um, you know, from the HMO model um, uh, onward. Um, different attempts to make things work um, and they they come and they go and they fail. <laughs> um, and now, you know, we've always sort of ridden through that and it's becoming harder and harder to see the bright light at the end of the current um, way that the, the, the um, payments are made through insurance companies and uh, our reimbursements. Um, I, I don't see things changing for us as independent providers. Um, Is crisis the right word to use here? Well, it's a a strong word, but yeah, I I think so. I think um, for all uh, primary care, we are in a crisis mode. And and, 
um, you know, I can't blame it all on insurance reimbursements, but I, I think you um, and Colin both uh, made the point that it, it's not as um, uh, alluring a, um, a discipline as maybe some of the other um, uh, medical disciplines that people feel they'll that get better income from and uh, be more solidly um, heading toward their future with. You know, there's another <laughs> aspect of primary care, uh, which has little to, less to do with the reimbursement, and that has to do with sort of the work uh, that's generated. And we've talked about this on the program before. Some of it has to do with the electronic medical records or EMRs. Mm-hmm. Some of it has yeah. to do with regulations from the government or from private insurances. But what I hear from primary care providers is it's just crushing. And I think people are aware of this, that over half the time uh, that primary care providers now spend in their practice has nothing to do with patient care, direct patient oh, care. Ab- yeah. That they are absolutely right. Right, they're either having to do, deal with the computer uh, billing and uh, uh, documenting things. Tell me, I mean, that has been a change, has it not? Yes, absolutely. We, you know, it sort of has been an insidious change, um, and we find, you know, just in the last few years, there's more and more and more that we have to do, and more that said, well you know, the primary care provider will fix this issue or, or you know, fill out this paperwork. And um, and we're constantly having to prove ourselves to, you know, to justify that what we do, you know, is good medicine, um, which isn't a bad thing, but it's, it's relentless. We're, you know, fill out this paperwork here or do this process there um, for, you know, just on so many levels. It, it you're absolutely right. We spend so much more time on paperwork, and um, in fact, it's called. Uh, they, there's a ter- there's a term for that. It, uh, some people use it's called pajama time because uh, when <laughs> patients uh, think that the office is closed, in fact, that's just the beginning of. Uh, we're halfway through a primary care provider's day. They're often spending several hours in the evening in front of their computer and much of the weekend. And what right. I've noticed is, and please tell me if you think this is true, that uh, more and more primary care providers, whether they're in a university system or, I mean, a, a consolidated system or independent, are finding it unable to work full time. And it has to do with really the, uh, the outside extraneous extra work that you're, you've described. Uh, and not only decreases their income, but it makes it tough because if they're not working full time, then that means less primary care providers out there. Uh, in fact, very few primary care providers today are working what what used to be thought of as uh, a full time forty hour a week at least in the office. What do you think? Well, I I do believe that is true. I mean, really, uh, um, to work forty hours in the office and um, and do the added on paperwork, you would have no uh, life outside of work, which is not a good outcome. Um, and you know, it, when you're in a position where you're salaried, or or when you've done it, this is what you do, um, and have always like seen patients, done the paperwork, and you you work until the day is done, um, and more and more your your day is extended by paperwork. It, it's very frustrating, you know. And I might make a patient call at seven o'clock at night to give them a test result, and they're you'd be like, why are you still at work? And you know, without recognizing that the few hours in between 
my last patient and the phone call has been really, um, much of it is administrative kind of uh, activity. So it, it, again, it's an insidious change. It, it, it slowly it accumulates. And Do you think medical you know, school and residency programs prepare primary care, future primary care providers for this? Um, I, it's been a long time since I was in that spot. Um, and I think, uh, I think I was well prepared for sort of the concept of, of, uh, primary care because that's what I wanted to do. And that's, you know, uh, where I focused. I think now UVM sends students out, part of the program, they're required to spend a little bit of time in a primary care office, but it's really like four half days uh, in the spring and four half days in the fall. And it gives them a taste of what primary care is like, um, because UVM, I think, is trying to encourage um, people to have some interest in primary care. Um, and I understand that there's there's something in the pipeline about uh, developing um, or, or promoting more primary care or rural health practice um, through medical school. I don't know how much more they they uh, push it. Um, you know, I, I think it's we may be able to hear from Miss Bar- uh, Jess yeah. Bernard in a little bit about that about uh, what initiatives are being done. Well, yeah. in the couple minutes we have before our break, uh, uh, Jess Bernard is. Uh, or actually a minute and 30 seconds. Can you tell us briefly what UVM is, to your knowledge, is doing to help uh, get people to go into primary care and have them stay in Vermont? Sure. One of the really exciting uh, issues that the legislature took on last uh, session was funding a new primary care scholarship. And so this creates a new program for up to 10 uh, students from UVM a year to have their full in-state tuition paid for if they then commit to coming back to Vermont to practice primary care in a rural part of the state. Um, for each year they, they practice, they can get up to a year of in-state tuition. It's a, a pretty exciting new program. This is the, it just, uh, the first class was named this fall and we're very optimistic that this will help retain primary care physicians in Vermont. And we, one of the big things we're asking for this year is for that to continue to be funded. It's, it's been funded by the legislature, um, and we think it's something yeah, that That, the that strikes me as potentially to. a very, very helpful initiative. In fact, more mm-hmm. helpful than offering ten dollars or $20,000 to other p- people from out of state to move here uh, because there's no uh, stipulation how long they can stay. But this has real, real substance to it, and we hope that will help. We're going to be back after the break. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and we're back with the second half of Healthcare Today, talking about primary care. And we have with us Dr. Laura Norris, who's a primary care physician in Cambridge, Vermont, and Jessa Barnard, the executive director of the Vermont Medical Society. Dr. Norris, uh, we talked earlier with Colin Flanders, who had embedded himself as the reporter for seven days in in some pra- uh, primary care practices uh, while he prepared to write his article. Would you walk us through a typical day um, in, in in a primary care uh, provider's life? Obviously, and tell us about some of the medical problems you take care of. Obviously, 
not with patient names or specific <laughs> identifying characteristics, but tell us a little bit about what time your day starts and give us a sense of what a day is like for you. Okay. Um, I start seeing patients at 8 o'clock in the morning, and generally I start uh, with a physical exam, um, which we give an hour uh, to a patient um, so that we can cover all sorts of things during that time. Um, part of it is sort of catching up with the patient because being a doctor in a small community, you you know a lot of the people um, and their families. Um, so uh, the rest would be reviewing their uh, their medical concerns and you know, some of the issues that, that may be presented to them uh, at that on that day. Anyway, um, we I do a couple of physicals in the morning and uh, have patients in between who may be coming for a high blood pressure check or a diabetes check or they're sick um, with acute illnesses um, uh, or, you know, we sort of see the gamut of, of patients' problems from depression to substance abuse to... Um, those that I mentioned already. We see patients till about 12.30. We take a break uh, midday to do um, paperwork and, and take phone calls and or make phone calls. Um, and then we see patients again um, until 5 o'clock in the evening. Um, again, uh, covering uh, issues that, that may present them a self-acutely or chronically. Um, the day is interspersed with phone calls to patients when we have a moment to maybe catch up on uh, lab results or um, report um, or just connect them with other physicians. Um, and then after patient care is uh, paperwork and administrative activities until they're done. And uh, presumably someone in your practice is always on call for uh, at yes, night time. Yes, we have someone available 24 hours a day, um, so we share call. We we used to have Saturday morning hours, um, which stopped when COVID came because uh, initially we were um, doing, we, we went very much remotely um, with COVID and uh, didn't want to bring people randomly in uh, when we didn't have to. Let's talk about um, that now, for a minute, how COVID yeah, affected sure. your practice and also telehealth. How How is the practice, how do you feel about telehealth? Um, I, I feel, I, I, I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's very convenient for certain things. Um, and, uh, it, it really has answered a, a question that we've had for years. You know, we'll, we'll call patients and spend 15 or 20 minutes on the phone discussing problems. And in the past, we've never been able to be reimbursed at all by these um, um, phone calls. And, and now there is some outlet for it. Um, uh, our patients, you know, we're a rural area. We have a, a, an older patient population and many of them had, you know, they're the, idea of having a video conference was uh, very foreign to them. So we've done most of our work uh, just by phone as opposed to the Zoom chats, although it, it, it has happened for sure. Um, we've just been told by Blue Cross Blue Shield that the reimbursement for phone uh, 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 office visits uh, is diminishing tremendously. So 
it was it was a really good thing for COVID when we didn't want to bring sick people into the office and people just took it up right away. But I think the um, ability to do this so liberally in the future will will wane. I mentioned that primary care providers are sort of like the quarterbacks uh, in the, in football. Quarterbacks, of course, pass the ball to others at times, um, and you have to have interactions with your colleagues and and specialists. How do you decide when to refer a patient and and when to try and take care of the problem yourself? Um, you know, there's certain things that I'm quite comfortable with doing, and I know my limits. And, um, you know, we, the specialists are out there, and, uh, you know, they know the depths of their their discipline. Um, and I know, the, as I said, the limits of mine. And when I get to a point where I'm not comfortable or can't do something, it's a no-brainer. I um, easily will, will refer um you know, we we try as primary care providers to do as much as we can without calling in the recruits. But I have um, no problem requesting assistance when necessary. And UVM actually has a really good program where uh, we have access to specialty providers by phone if we have questions. Um, we can just call UVM and say, you know, could you connect me with a cardiologist? I have a question and. And the doctors are, are fantastic and, and give us that support so that they don't always have to see the patients themselves but could give us advice. I should point out so that, that particularly being a rural uh, state, if there's a problem with the vanishing uh, primary care providers, it's even more noticeable uh, in terms of the specialists. Um, oh, yeah. Most of which yeah. are now concentrating at the uh, either Dartmouth or UVM, it seems, at Rutland to some degree. and. But uh, it's very; uh, they're disappearing quickly from the uh, from the rural areas, um, which leaves primary care, in some ways, more responsible for doing even more. Uh, even if you do have that phone uh, connection, sometimes you still have to take care of the problem yourself. Yeah. Uh, this is true. If you could change one or even two things right now uh, about primary care, what would make not only your job easier, but allow you to do more for your patients. What, what would you change? Um, I would, um, boy, that's a good question. <laughs> sort of a broad. Uh, if you had a magic wand right now. Broad picture, I don't know. You know, I, I, I wish there was more time with patients and less time with administrative uh, responsibilities. Um, so, you know, if there were a discipline where someone could just do the, uh, well, I suppose there is a, a um, yeah. Well, I suppose if I could give up some of the administrative work, that would be that would be good. Um, but there are models like that where you know, in some of the corporate medicine, where you know you have somebody to do X, Y, and Z that you pay more money to, and there go the healthcare dollars to that person. Um, the providers are able to see maybe more patients. Um, well, that may or may not be true. I, I'm sure you've heard from colleagues in the community health centers and other uh, corp- more corporate type places where they're still under a crushing administrative debt. Uh, yeah, burden. no. You're um, right. Interestingly, you the are specialists right. are. This has fallen mostly on the primary care providers. That's my experience. Surgeons and other specialists are are not. Uh, uh, burden to the same extent, and I think we need to look at that, why it, the burden has fallen so 
profoundly on primary care and how it's affecting patient care. I want to thank you. Stay on the line with us. I do want to get back to Jess Bernard, and I appreciate, uh, Jess, you uh, uh, being here the whole hour. Um, you mentioned that initiative, uh, which sounds very promising, that, you, uh, that the state will begin uh, uh, foregoing tuition for uh, a year of tuition for each year that uh, new uh, primary care providers will commit to uh, staying in Vermont and serving in rural areas. Um, let's talk about any other initiatives that the uh, Vermont Medical Society would like to push this year. Sure. Happy to mention a couple of others that I think relate to a number of the comments you've already heard. Um, one is we're working with the legislature. In fact, um, Senator Jenny Lyons, the chair of the Senate Health and Welfare Committee, just introduced a bill that contains a couple of these elements. And one is to increase the percent of health care spending that go in Vermont goes to primary care services. So to um, Colin Sanders' point at the beginning, we know we're working with a finite pot of money in general, and we just can't keep putting more money into the health care system because somebody's paying for that, either the um, folks who are paying health care premiums or, or taxes to go to the Medicaid and Medicare programs. But we can look at how much spending within our health care system goes to primary care. Um, currently, it's a pretty small percent. It varies based on payer, um, but overall it's about um, 8 or 9%, depending how you measure it, and we're looking to require that uh, each payer reaches a goal of 12% of their overall spending going to primary care um, rather than other services. Now, we do um, have the one care system still in place in yeah. Vermont for at least a period of time longer. Um is are you talking about one care and that controls much of the healthcare dollars now in Vermont? Are you talking about one care increasing their primary care expenditures? So we've been talking to one care about how this goal um, interacts with their work with um, providers to shift how healthcare dollars are spent. But this would be actually sort of the inputs to the system because you know there's the inputs coming from the payers, coming from Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial payers. And then one care takes that pot of money and helps divvy it up between the provider system. Um, and this is saying that even coming from the payer side, how much each of those payers contributes to primary care has to go up. And then that would help one care to contribute, uh, make sure that that pie is being divided up in a way that primary care is getting uh, a, a fairer share of the pot. Uh, so it, it could include both. It's it both how much the payers are contributing and then how one care is dividing it up. Now, you've heard from um, Dr. Norris and, and Colin Flanders uh, that it's not only reimbursement that's that's a pressure right now. It's this kind of crushing administrative uh, burdens on primary care. Is there anything Vermont Medical Society can do to ease that? Because, again, my sense is that that is driving people either out of the field or to significantly cut back their hours of service. Um, is there anything Vermont yeah, Medical absolutely. Society can do? It is a, it is a huge um, burden on primary care, and it is something we're looking at very closely. We actually led the efforts to pass a bill in 2020 called, that's been referred to as Act 140, that requires some steps in this direction. It's kind of moving the needle a little bit. So that What bill, steps would that entail? How would that make it better? 
Yep. Um, so one of the things it requires is that each commercial payer has what's called a gold card program in place. So this is a program where um, providers who have a high rate of their prior authorizations being accepted get kind of a fast pass around that system. You know, we know that ultimately up to 95% of prior authorizations are approved. And yet through that system, you know, patients give up, providers give up. It takes a lot of time sitting on hold on the phone. Um, So one approach to reducing prior authorizations is saying, you know, if you are a primary care physician or other clinician and you have a high rate of your prior authorizations always being approved, then why do you have to go through this system for every one of your patients? Well, not to be cynical about this, but certainly for many years or decades, uh, physicians have felt that that is one way the system controls their costs. They put you on hold long enough so that you give up. And we oh, see absolutely. that in other industries no, I as well. I agree. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why it, that one of the reasons it saves money is that both providers or patients give up, um, and you're, you're right. Um, so that, no, we, we agree with that. Um, so looking to, um, and also looking to expand, you know, the Medicaid program in Vermont is actually on the forefront of working with one care to reduce prior authorizations. So what, what, um, Medicaid has said is that if you are a practice that participates in one care, since you and the healthcare system participating in one care is taking on some risk for healthcare dollars, that you no longer have to do most prior authorizations. Um, So through that program, DIVA, or Vermont Medicaid, has actually uh, um, made a big step towards reducing prior authorizations. And we'd love to see the other payers get on board. Um, You know, one of the the things that makes Vermont's healthcare system, well, the country's healthcare system so complicated is that each regulator or each player only has so much uh, authority over the system. So even this in Vermont and through OneCare, we're doing a great job reducing prior authorizations. There are all of the uh, national health insurance plans that Vermont can't regulate. So that's another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, there's certainly a lot, and that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, pretend that Vermont can control the whole health care system because uh, um, uh, we have a caller, uh, Ethan in Montpelier. Ethan, hello. Thanks for calling. uh, Thank you for uh, taking my call. I've been listening to the show and find it very interesting. Um, I just have a comment. I think we as a society have kind of missed the boat on how important primary care is. Um, other countries all around the world, both the developed world and now even a lot of underde- underdeveloped countries, seem to have figured this out, that if you want to really affect population health, there needs to be much more resources and emphasis put on primary care. And listening to your two physician guests, I just kept thinking how different their professional lives would be if every patient coming through the doors of their clinic um, was covered by some universal publicly funded program and eliminate all this uh, extra administration around the multiple payers and insurance companies and also eliminate all this craziness around payment reform, and the ACO, uh, the acronyms go on and on, and they haven't affected in a positive way um, the delivery of essential primary care. Ethan, I, uh, I think a lot of people might agree with you. 
Um, obviously, Vermont has uh, struggled with this issue for some time. I know our previous caller, Dr. Deb Richter, has been on the forefront of advocating for a single-payer plan. Um, Jessa Bernard, uh, what about what Ethan's saying? Is do you see a pathway to less, uh, less to a simpler system? Uh, I think the hard part of that question is: do do I see achieving a simpler system? Um, I think there. I think he's absolutely right. I think there is a pathway to a simpler system, and in fact, our organization adopted a position of supporting a national single-payer healthcare system last fall, um, a little over a year ago. Uh, I think the challenge is getting our, you know, federal government to make that change. And we, we have a lot of questions about what's on the state level. As you said, we, we tried that, and it's very hard to fund a system, a uh, universal healthcare system with one small state. We only have 600,000 people in our whole state, but at, a, at the national level, I, I think it could work. I think the challenge is the politics of, of getting there. And I, I do think that would simplify, you know, if there were one set of rules, one set of billing rules, one set of prior authorization rules, would that make primary care a lot simpler? Absolutely. Well, I think, uh, Ethan, thank you. Thank you for your call. Um, let me ask, uh, Jess, let me ask uh, you, there, there's, uh, we've been talking about physicians, but there are others who are uh, very involved in our primary care system, and those include physician assistants who are soon, I believe, to be uh, called physician associates, as well as nurse practitioners, and they are filling a, a need uh, throughout Vermont, particularly perhaps in our rural areas, in primary care. Um, now, the, the physician assistant or physician associates come under the, uh, super, are supervised, uh, to some extent by physicians and they come under the, um, auspices of the Vermont Medical Board, I believe. The nurse practitioners, uh, are trained as, initially as nurses and come under the nursing board. Um, in terms of Vermont Medical Society, um, where does the Vermont Medical Society stand on on sort of the the role of these two rather different uh, uh, professions in primary care? You know, I would say we absolutely see their necessity and integral role in the primary care system. As you said, they you know while Vermont has seen a decrease of primary care physicians over time, there has been a um, increase in, in PAs and, and advanced practice nurses entering primary care. And, the, you know, I think there would not be enough primary care in Vermont without them. Um, we actually have PA members of our organization, the Vermont Medical Society. Um, they also have their own association, and then there's a nurse practitioner association. We work um, fairly closely or try to be in touch and work closely with both of them. I think a lot of, uh, you know, most primary care initiatives that we are working on benefit all primary care providers, and it's really about strengthening the whole primary care system, not just one member of that team. We did actually do a show on the uh, um, what are called mid-level providers um, last year. Uh, one difference is nurse practitioners are allowed, I believe, under Vermont law to practice independently. So they can go through their nursing degree, get a, a two-year, usually a, within two years, a nurse practitioner degree, and then put out their own shingle. Does the uh, Vermont Medical Society have any thoughts on that? Well, our, our um, 
position is that we support the current, there actually is a trans, what's called a transition to practice requirement for advanced practice nurses. And so they have, a, I believe it's a currently a two-year requirement that they do work in collaborative practice with another physician or advanced practice nurse. And we think that makes a lot of sense. It's a bit like kind of have a residency program for a, a physician. Um and actually, PAs went, underwent a fairly large regulatory change a couple of years ago that our organization also supported, which was a move from um, supervised practice, being supervised by a physician, to collaborative, more of a collaborative practice model, which we think actually reflects more how um, practice has been working in Vermont. And uh, I think that change has gone fairly smoothly. Well, they're both, uh, both of those professions are very important parts of our primary care. Um, in the minute and a half we have left, Jessica Bernard, if you had a magic wand right now and could, what, what is one or two, briefly, one or two things you would change about to help build primary care? Wow, I could pick one or two. I think one of the things I'd really love to see sooner rather than later is strengthening when we have embedded uh, other staff at primary care practices, so mental health providers, care coordinators. We know so much of what primary care does is not what we might think of as quote-unquote medical, but addressing social determinants of health and other um, patient needs. And so I think that would benefit Vermonters and um, primary care clinicians take even better care of their patients. Well, primary care, as I said at the top, remains the fundamental uh, entry point for medicine. It is so important. We need to support it. I hope uh, – and I hope this show has been helpful to people. We're going to come back to this topic again. Um, Next, I want to thank our guests, Colin Flanders, who was on earlier, uh, Dr. Laura Norris uh, from uh, Independent Physician from Cambridge, Vermont, who is out there working every day and every night hard. And, of course, Jessa Bernard, who's leading the Vermont Medical Society. Next week, we're going to talk with a national expert on why medications are so expensive. He's going to try and explain that process to us. Until then, please be careful out there. Be uh, safe in this very cold weather we're going to have this weekend. Uh, Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to others. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.